My name is Bayan Rice. I'm a third generation wine grower, and I've been making wine for over two decades here in Santa Barbara wine country. It's more than a job, it's a calling. Join me as I talk to my fellow winemakers in a series that is a candid conversation between winemakers discussing their wines, their craft, and their lives over two glasses of wine. Hi, I'm Bayan Rice, and we are two glasses in with Kathy Joseph, the legendary winemaker from Santa Barbara, and I am so excited to have you here today. I've been enjoying your first Pinot Noir of the day, and it's absolutely stunning. And I can't wait to hear what you have to say about how you got started in the wine business. So tell me about your, the roots and how you ended up here. Tell me maybe about Chicago. That's where you're from, you're from right. Chicago, and your family moved out here, or you did? No, actually, it was a solo move, strictly for the wine business. We had family here. I went to college in Wisconsin at Madison, and I studied microbiology and biochemistry, which was for the purpose of, of medical school or the beginnings of what I thought was a career in that direction. Decided that it was, it was not the focus that I wanted for my future and felt young and experimental and realized that I had this broad wealth of information that could lead me into soil science or dairy science or wine science or flavor science and I picked one and dove in knowing that it may work or may not work. So I knew or learned that my background was uh, incredibly applicable to the wine industry and let's face it, fermentation is all about making wine and biochemistry is about the aging of wine. And so I decided to apply to Davis for graduate school. But I also made a promise to myself that I needed to integrate on-site experience to supplement the education. So I didn't want just schooling because I knew I was good at that, but I wanted to learn the purpose of the schooling. And so I actually worked for six months in Sonoma at Simi Winery when Zelma Long was there, then started graduate school, and every vintage through graduate school, I worked at a different winery, was taken under the wing of the winemakers, and, and really was on a very elevated learning curve. Well, for people who don't know, UC Davis is considered to be one of the best schools in the world for enology and viticulture, and you were a graduate there. And what was it like going to UC Davis back in those days? Well, it's interesting because for me it was a very easy segue because I had all of the science background and I was just learning how to apply it to wine. And so it was quite exciting and, and fun and interesting and it was an amazing class and I met a lot of people who landed in Napa. Few decided to start their own businesses. So, you know, my ultimate vision and where I landed was very different out of the area and really developing my own business. Davis was, it, it was a technical school, but for me it expanded the artistry of the science that I learned and loved. And I still use that science as background information in my winemaking today. Oh, we'll have to get into that. <laughs> I'm really interested in the artistry of wine as opposed to the science of wine. That's yeah. partly what I'm all about is the more of the empirical approach and, and crafting a wine that's unique to your palate as opposed to necessarily worrying about the science. Right. You know, there's a lot of gut instinct in other words. I'd like to hear if you could compare for me the differences between real world winemaking and a real winery. 
versus more of the theoretical winemaking in, mm. in enology at, at your you know graduate experience? Would you say yeah. you've learned more in the real world, or do you think that the education's really been a huge contributor to your abilities? So neither is more important, and um, it's important to not let one stand alone. So I learned about the mechanics of equipment and why you might select one over another to accomplish the job at hand. I learned why pH is so important in the wine and how it affects microbiological stability and color and acid balance and longevity. So I don't make my wines using the science, it's background information. I know about the size of yeast and bacteria and when you need to filter and when you don't have to filter. You might not need the education, but the information is invaluable. And I use it more to problem solve and to avoid problems than I do to drive my winemaking. Well, I'll tell you what, I did not get a degree in enology or viticulture, and I've been raised in a family wine business, and I've been learning through the, I guess, school of hard knocks, if you will. (laughs) Um, But I will say that I have a UC Davis consultant who I call upon when I can't answer these situations myself. So I use him as a lifeline and he's incredible. So I can attest to the fact that you ne- you definitely need to have your wine doctor on hand. So the issue for me is that I can avoid the mistake before it happens. And so I use it as my bag of tricks. I want to make sure the palate of my wines are elegant and delicious, but I know the chemistry of the wine that will help me drive the wine in that direction. And so, again, I don't use it. I I mean, I have it to problem solve, but I can consult with someone to make a different choice by just knowing that information. And it's not difficult for me. It's just in the background. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like you're extremely passionate about wine and the science and the artistry of it. Tell me what made you decide to make the jump to starting your own vineyard. And I understand that you got started in Santa Barbara winemaking in, what was the year? So 1989 was my first vintage. And um, it's interesting because my um, uh, prior jobs were in the North Coast in Napa and Sonoma. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to step into that life because of notoriety, but I like the challenge of designing a company that was something new and something that was going to make a difference and both to me in terms of my interest and creating a path but also something that not so many people were doing so i was basically a cabernet producer in napa and yet in my marketing experience i crossed paths with an oregonian who was representing oregon wines on the road and i learned the passion of pinot noir and i learned to taste pinot noir and i was invited to conferences to explore my palate with pinot noir it it allowed me to design a company that was strictly based um, not only around Pinot Noir, but Sauvignon Blanc. Two unusual varieties at the time that I started. You were ahead of your time. They were not stars. And I wanted my wines to be elegant and place-driven and use the European model of Mm -hmm. success. And I wanted to kind of scream terroir in Santa Barbara County. And more recently, I've added Gruner Veltliner to the mix of what I make. Oh, I can't wait to try that. (laughs) So you're an entrepreneur and you're a winemaker and tell me about grape growing. How much do you have a a say and and how much passion and love do you have for your grapevines? 
Right. So the I think the unique thing about Fiddlehead Sellers is that I'm involved and I'm an owner. And so I have a brain that the left side of the brain is active and the right side of the brain is active. And so I own the business and I own the vineyard and I live on the property and I decide what should happen on a given day. And I consult with experts to make good decisions. So ownership in my source of grapes, you know, where it happens, to me is helps drive the uniqueness and the quality. Mm-hmm. So I, I not only grow the grapes, but I buy the grapes for myself. Mm-hmm. And so I'm different in that I don't want to load up crop and benefit from being a vineyard owner. I want the quality of my efforts to shine in my wine. So they call that a wine grower, right? It's a big difference. (laughs) There's the grape growers who grow for wineries, and then there's wine growers who know that they're growing their grapes for wine. So I care a lot. So I care a lot about how growing grapes impact my choices, but also I grow grapes for other people. So I learn from other winemakers' needs and information and background. And the vineyard, my state vineyard, is called Fiddlesticks Vineyard. It's stellar. It's I, I'm so proud of what we do, and yet I don't have a pile of money that I can throw at it. So every one of my decisions is about getting a return on why I make that decision. Mm-hmm. And that's how the business runs. And so I am involved in not just growing the grapes and making the wine, but the administration. So buying computers and marketing style and technique and brokers that I work with. And I mean, talk about involvement. <laughs> It's, it's like a lot of hats. My life. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people don't realize, and they picture a vintner in their mind of, of what their day looks like. Yeah. But they have no idea that you're wearing 10 hats and you're having to you know, grow the grapes, make it into wine, and then you have to sell it and you have to put on your sales hat. And you're constantly in one of those three areas every day. How, how much do you enjoy the, the process of selling wine and being out in the market and meeting people and discussing your wines? So remember that left side of the brain and right side of the brain? Um, I like it all. I mean, I like doing spreadsheets because I like the challenge and the art of discovery. And I like to take a part of pomp. And I love the people that we meet. And I like the people who come through the tasting room because they're all different. And I, in many ways, connect with all of them because I have to know about trademark law and I have to know about accounting and I have to know about equipment and farming and all of that. Mm-hmm. It's the customer that really drives the business. So I could make all the wine in the world, but if I can't introduce it to someone who's interested, then I've failed. So um, my challenge is dividing my time and also my reach because I don't have quite the reach I, I would like. I mean, let's face it, I'd love it to be worldly, um, yeah. but I'm one person and um, I've engaged a very small pool of um, a valuable assistance that I'm forever grateful to. But um, I'd rather be very personal to someone than expecting someone else to carry the torch for me. It sounds like you've preferred to stay small and hands-on and direct to consumer as much as possible and really engaging with your consumer base personally. I think that's admirable. So a lot of people don't know the scale of wineries. You know, People don't realize some of the bigger wineries they've heard of at grocery stores are between 10 to 40 million cases. 
and they don't realize that we being boutique producers yeah. are under 10,000 cases. So yeah. when you compare what we're doing compared to large commercial, uh, sure, I'll take some more of that. <laughs> it's, it's delicious. What, what people don't realize is that staying small produces, I think, better quality wine, and they also get a better experience because they're not only walking into the tasting room and experiencing where the wine comes from, but they're also meeting the winemaker and or the owner and I think that's a really big deal for people to connect with their producers. Actually I have I try to be very broad thinking and there are a lot of people that appreciate what I do and they love my stories but sometimes people's budget is different and that they want a wine that doesn't necessarily respect the vintage but they they know the flavor and larger wineries have a different focus. And so I, I really respect that. What I do is a piece of the information. I'm a great educator. I love telling the story on why and, and I, I encourage people to develop their palates. But at the same time, we want everyone to drink wine and I don't care at what level. I really, they will grow mm -hmm. to learn about my wine. So I try to be universal and I try to travel and I try to do something different all the time so that people don't know me just for one thing, but they know me for my um, diversity of wine and winemaking, but also the diversity of information I can share. I love that. Yeah. You're very objective in your thinking, <laughs> for sure. I mean, small wineries want to be about small wineries, yeah. but Gallo's success, not to name a single one out, but is that it's a reliable brand. Mm -hmm. And I think getting people to know wine and drink wine is, is incredibly important. And Europe, what they did right was they made wine part of a lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we want to do. And it doesn't have to be precious. It should be a, a joy and create conversation and be great with food. And it's an experience, but the back background scene is so great and we're all different because of our stories and so I hope people like discover my story. Absolutely. <laughs> I was in France and I could exactly, yeah. rep what you're saying is exactly what I experienced in France. Yeah. Everyone was in a cafe, you know, drinking wine and it was a social experience. It, it wasn't drinking. Yeah. You know, it's wine is like a food to them. Yeah. America has really been thought has been thinking of wine as an alcoholic beverage and they haven't really been thinking of it as a social beverage or a food. And I've I've constantly been trying to get people to realize like this is an accompaniment to a meal. Yeah. And conversation and education and it's expansive on just the the joy of wine and winemaking. So we are Lone Rangers in many ways, and I grew up in the Midwest, and I remember going to a restaurant where they didn't even have a wine opener. And yet the people that I was sharing wine with were excited to run to the grocery store and get a wine opener to be part of that experience. So we have to be really, like I said, broad thinking, and I, I just think that that's how we can grow. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more. So tell me about your experience in the early days of Santa Barbara wine industry. And there was a small, you know, enclave of winemakers, a couple dozen at the most, who all knew each other. And there was this sense of sharing and camaraderie. How was it then compared to now? Are, are you, do you feel like Santa Barbara's still connected? And, and tell me about those early days. Maybe you have a few stories. So I love Santa Barbara, and it's not just because the climate is so well suited to the wines I make, it's because 
I, by the way, I also make an Oregon Pinot Noir, and I find a lot of similarities between the two places in terms of diversified agriculture, so that we share this extraordinary environment with row crops, and it could be zucchini, or artichokes, or lettuces, or peas, or walnut trees. It's great to use the environment in this sustainable grape growing for, for mm -hmm. life, really. Yeah. And Oregon is very much the same way. We, we have preserved our open space, and yet we have made it a famous place for the specificity of our climates and soils. And so we have designated Appalachians. I'm mostly based in the Santa Rita Hills, but um, Happy Canyon, where my Sauvignon Blanc grows, is equally as important. Mm -hmm. I think in the early days, some people were guessing on what to do. Grapes were planted in the wrong places, but one of the reasons I picked Santa Barbara County was because there was um, a critical mass of people who were growing successfully and making world-class wines, whether we had the opportunity to market it that way. Uh, you know, that was my, my palate exploration on where should I go and where can I be successful. So even then, I was like a great believer in the place and I wanted to be part of the growing recognition of this place. So I've spent my entire life promoting Santa Barbara County as an extraordinary grape growing district. And there's a lot of newcomers to the area, which I embrace. I think we wanna respect our neighbors and respect our environment. And I think that we learned what should be grown in what place. That's, mm -hmm. We didn't have that information before. Right. And I think it's a bit of the passing of the torch of what has been successful. And as maybe a generation that's been around for a while, I hope to learn from newcomers mm -hmm. so I can kind of grow the importance of my brand based on new information that I just didn't have in the early years. I love how you think. It's I really do. <laughs> no, that's a, it's a very innovative, you're constantly innovating, you're constantly rethinking and you're, you're the type of person who doesn't close down and say, we gotta do it this yeah. way. No, you're open-minded and that's, yeah. that's And you know, my parents were like that. And so, I mean, my dad never owned a computer, but he was incredibly knowledgeable about the importance of computers and even the internet age. He was a, a big defender on, you know, allowing people to have access to information via the internet. So um, I try to um, use, you know, family history to incorporate it into my, my life. Family values, I guess. Yeah, that's, it's gotta start somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about the names Fiddlehead and Fiddlesticks. So I guess when you're starting out a brand, you have to decide what to call yourself. And I set some rules for myself. I wanted a brand that was going to be memorable, easy to say, that wasn't a family name because as the entrepreneurial part, I thought if I ever sell, do I want to give up my name? And so um, the scientist in me kind of came forward and as I was gardening in my fern bed, I remembered fiddlehead, fiddlehead, what a great word. Mm. It's the coiled frond of a fern leaf. Right. And the connection is, you know, part history, but part that it emerges once a year, like my new releases, and it evolves into this very elegant plant and something that is memorable and it's 
it's easy to say and you'll never forget it. So Fiddlehead became really core to the brand. And then there were, was a whole expansion of other names. So Fiddlesticks became the name of the vineyard, kind of as a joke. Mm -hmm. I make a Pinot Noir from Fiddlesticks called Lollapalooza. In <laughs> fact, I am the a trademark owner of Wine and Spirits for Lollapalooza. The owner of the music concert wasn't thrilled, but <laughs> <laughs> it, it spoke to me as the best of its kind. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, cheers, right, cheers, right, you know? absolutely. This is, it's, it was like a discovery. And so mm -hmm. Lollapalooza was my barrel select wine. Mm -hmm. uh, the brand has expanded to include one that's a family name called Birdie Baby. It was my mom's pet name for my dad. Oh. Doyle is named after my husband who supports me in life and in spirit and my endeavor in the wine business. And so it naming is not easy, but they're all very personal and meaningful. Well, for those of you listening to the podcast right now, I can vouch for the fact that Kathy is not only inspirational speaking wise, <laughs> but she's got a little sparkle in her eye that I am really admiring. And it's, it's a you. great trait that must come from your parents. You know, you, you, it, family is really important to me. I'm the black sheep of the family. They're all attorneys. <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't figure out what I was doing, but you know, they're my biggest fans and try to try to carry on the life experience that I've learned along the way. Two Glasses In has been brought to you by Visit Santa Barbara. There are seaside escapes, then there's a gentle crescent of California coast connecting breathtaking beaches, soaring mountains, verdant vineyards, elevated enclaves, and eclectic communities. More than beautiful, it's Santa Barbara Brilliant. Visit SantaBarbaraCA.com to plan your stay. So you've had a lot of experiences along the way. Yes. One of them was pretty massive from a marketing perspective, and it was the Sideways movie that ah. came out. And what was yeah. that, 2003 or four? Four. 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 I have a lot of passwords, 2004. <laughs> <laughs> I won't tell anybody. But Sunstone was overnight after that movie came came on. My tasting room was packed with people who wanted to come to Sideways Country, <laughs> and you happened to be featured. Your wine was a Sauvignon Blanc. It was was featured in the movie. So how unique how, is that in a Pinot did, Noir movie? Yeah, they're talking about my Sauvignon Blanc. <laughs> so did that just completely blow up your business, or did it actually yeah. have a negative impact? So I think the impact is maybe a little different from yours. I'm based in Lompoc, a little bit off the beaten path. We became very close friends with the director, Alexander Payne, and we had many of the actors to my vineyard and my winery. It was incredibly memorable on how my wine got into the movie, which was Alexander Payne actually tasted the wine and said, I'm gonna write this into the script. Perfect. <laughs> It was very exciting, and I think it was the greatest thing about Sideways. It, it gave people permission to drink a variety that they were uncomfortable with and, and did not understand, and that's Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. And they learned the passion, and they learned that it was, they learned how to say Pinot Noir, and they could right. ask for Pinot Noir. It's a little funny, because whether you were in the movie or not, you said you were in the movie. The way my brand really took off was through the props person. And the props person loved the wine so much that since then, my wine has been in a whole 
host of other movies. So Annette Benning is drinking my wine and the kids are all right. Oh, that's and great. Entourage featured my Rosé of Pinot Noir. And there are many, many more. Sounds like it really had a positive impact on the brand overall and a lot of event yeah. opportunities. Exciting mm -hmm. way that mm -hmm. I could never predict. Who would have so guessed, that? right? <laughs> So tell me about where you are now. You have, you said you have 99 acres and maybe you can break down the percentages by varietal for me, but then also how many cases of wine are you making? Yeah. So I make between four and 5,000 cases of wine. It's spread across my estate grown fiddlesticks Pinot, my Gruner Veltliner, Sauvignon Blanc from Happy Canyon, and my Oregon Pinot. So quite a bit of diversity. The vineyard is huge, and it's huge because I was in an area where I had to purchase a minimum of 100 acres by the Ag Code. The great thing is that I grow fabulous wine, but I only select about 15% of the vineyard for my own brand, and then I sell to other stellar winemakers, both in Santa Barbara County and up in um, Napa Valley. We've, we've really gained a wonderful reputation through our growing practices and a, a lot of awards to, not my wines, but the mm -hmm. whole pool of winemakers. So I've learned from not just what I think is right and what my customers want, but what everyone can contribute to make this a special place. So Kathy, tell me about this uh, 728 Pinot Noir from Fiddlesticks Vineyard. And if you wouldn't mind giving me a sense for where it's located geographically, mm -hmm. right. and a little bit about the wine, which I need to pour you some more. Thank you. <laughs> there you go. Yummy. The Appalachian Santa Rita Hills is so extraordinary for its school climate, but it has great diversity. And so there's two avenues that pass through the Appalachian that has east-west running mountain ranges, highly unique, the only one on the west coast, entire west coast mm -hmm. for um, a wine district. And so our temperatures close to the ocean are quite cool. And as you move through the Appalachian, they get a little bit warmer, but within the, the cool range. We're on the Southern Avenue, which is Santa Rosa Road. And I really felt that our position was so important that I wanted to name a wine after it. So coming from the Midwest, I named it after the mile marker. So starting at mile zero on Highway 1, you travel exactly 7.28 miles mm. to get to the driveway of Fiddlesticks Vineyard. So it's a place name that the wine is meant to represent the character of the vineyard and just the, the quality that we're able to achieve. Now, it's really important because I'm directly across the street from one of the original plantings in an Appalachian that didn't exist. So Sanford and Benedict Vineyard is my neighbor, and I knew the success of those wines by being able to monitor the aging of those wines and taste wines that were planted from grapes, uh, made from grapes that were planted in 1972. So it was important to me to minimize my risk, the business side of me, by investing in what was a flower farm, which is kind of what much of Lompoc Valley mm -hmm. was about, and transition agricultural field where much of the labor moved to South America because of the cost of labor to a very sustainable right. agricultural business that, you know, low water usage, that were, mm -hmm. were sustainably certified, that could take advantage of the 
kind of cool climate growing demands of Pinot Noir. And so I've become a big advocate. We actually bought the land five years before the Appalachian came into existence. So it was um, really trying to be forward thinking in what was going to be an important place in Santa Barbara County. So in addition to this wine, there's a whole group of sister wines that are barrel select wines, but it was important that this one, 728, represent the place. Beautiful. <laughs> So tell me about when the fruit arrives in the cellar and you're responding to the vintage, not knowing what you're gonna receive. Where does that creative excitement come from every harvest for you in the cellar? Yeah, it's a great question. So my winery and tasting room are in Lompoc, very near the vineyard. As I mentioned, I live on the property. So my job during harvest is to decide when to pick and where to pick. And it can be half a ton, it can be four tons, five tons, and to work with my crew very closely to direct them on what we want to accept and what we want to eliminate. So we do field sorting one bucket at a time in the middle of the night. So we only night harvest because that's the coolest hours of the day and we can do the least amount of damage to um, fruit that is ripe and mm -hmm. ready to go in this very thin skin variety. So I then join my associate winemaker at the winery and decide what to marry together to ferment in very small batches to get the greatest diversity of options for future wines that we're going to make. So I try to make a wine that is layered and silky and will expand the test of time. And so I have events where we bring out um, lots of older vintages and the customer can experience the success of what I did many years earlier. Do you know if it's <laughs> gonna be a great vintage when the fruit arrives? Do you taste the grapes and go, oh my God, this is so much better than last year? I consider it my job to be able to translate the grape into a finished wine and as a small producer, I get the benefit of making the best wine of the vintage. So I don't make the same decisions every year, but every year must be an extraordinary vintage for maybe a different reason. Mm -hmm. And so really, if I didn't think it was a good vintage or the fruit wasn't great, I would probably sell it. So I like to think that this is going to be my 31st vintage this year. And I like to think that the accumulation of experience is what helps to make my wines. You have been a pioneer in this region and one of your most notable achievements in assisting our region has been the development of the Santa Rita AVA in 2005. That's an, a major accomplishment not only for, for our AVA but for you as well I think for your vineyard and I knew that took a group effort but I understand you were really a important player in the process of getting that approved, as well as Happy Canyon. Happy Canyon, which was further inland, which your Sauvignon Blanc grows in, a warmer climate. You had to delineate between the two climates of the two regions and help develop that AVA as well. That's a major accomplishment. Yeah, it's very exciting. I obviously didn't do it solo, but from Happy Canyon, I was probably one of the earliest great purchasers from vineyards that were developed there on, on an experimental basis. And to make a Bordeaux-based varietal that is not herbaceous, that is not extreme, that has elegance, that has world-class character, is that was what was so exciting. 
and it transitioned recognition from an area that was, you know, making, so making wines in these districts that I believed in really brought our wines um, more international exposure. I think the quality just jumped light years. Santa Rita Hills, again, the Pinot Noir front, um, very limited in where we can grow grapes, and even within our small AVA has extraordinary diversity. And so it's a challenge to share that specialness with the world. And I think we, we just have this wonderful place that people need to discover. For those of you who don't know, American Viticultural Area, AVA, is really hard to get approved. And you went yeah. through, you had to go to the federal government and yeah, draft yeah. up papers and pull geographical and geological and climate studies and provide all that to back the study. And it's to defend the specialness of the place and to create boundaries for the place. And so it is not easy and yet we, you know, you know what to expect when a wine comes from that area. They're not all the same, they have great diversity, but that it is very appropriate to the varietals grown here. And again, our proximity to the ocean breezes and the coastal fog that rolls in is particularly unique and um, something we very much embrace and something that I wake up to every single morning. Well, I'm grateful for all your hard work, and I know a lot of the winemakers and grape, people who buy grapes from those AVAs are very happy that they can put that name proudly on their bottles. And, you know, it's a lot of hard work, and it's our job to make it look like it's seamless and that it's easy. And, but if you love what you do, you don't mind the hard work. And I think that's, um, again, one of my life commitments. Yeah. Well, Kathy, you've brought much more than just your winemaking skill. Uh, your grape growing skill and your camaraderie and obviously you've been an incredibly you know yeah. wonderful person in our region to work with um, as a team and helping to market our brand of Santa Barbara but you have a lot of outreach you know not just with the sideways effect that we've experienced but you've you know tapped into your connections in Chicago and you've been a, a really a light for Santa Barbara as a brand and people look to you for guidance in our area so really appreciate that and you know, you can never put down your guard, and I think there's our industry is incredibly competitive, but we want to embrace the specialness of this place, and I think people would be missing out if they didn't work it into one of their future visits. So tell me about your tasting room. People would love to go visit you and, and taste your wines. What, you know, how do they find you? So typically our tasting room is open on weekends, Saturday and Sunday. My website, fiddleheadsellers.com, has uh, current hours, but also you can book specialty reservations for vineyard tours and barrel tastings through a third party called talk.com and you always get an expanded experience and I encourage people to do that. Um, we change up our tasting lineup all the time. Even though we make only three varietals, you are almost guaranteed tasting something different every time. So what's the future of Fiddlehead and Fiddlesticks Vineyard and your future look like? Where, what's your, what gets you up in the morning? What are you excited about? What's the next big thing? Ooh, you know, I kind of live every day at a time <laughs> because of my involvement. So I don't want to grow bigger because I size my winery where I could have control over what each barrel is doing. I taste every single barrel and determine appropriate blends. 
and I like to share that as often as I can. I hope to, you know, share what I do or maybe pass the torch to the next generation. In the meantime, I continue to do what I do. Like I said, Gruner Beltliner, a wine that I used to drink a lot, I decided to plant on an experimental basis. It's really taken off, very little grown in the country, and so, you know, I add that to my passion. I don't know what's going to come my way. I kind of respond. I think preserving the open space of Santa Barbara County and the camaraderie amongst winemakers and, and, and customers, I, I hope that carries on long into the future. Mm -hmm. Wow, I share that uh, feeling 100%. Well, I see about six bottles of wine <laughs> over there from Fiddlehead, and I'm dying to go open some of those and try some more, because two glasses just isn't <laughs> yeah. enough. Yeah, so let's carry on. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you. Two Glasses In was created and produced by Rafael A. Ruiz and Brian Rice. This show has been produced in conjunction with Visit Santa Barbara. Co-produced by Jesse Lynn Perkins, Alex Blackmon and John M. Shalafant. Sound by John M. Shalafant and music by Peter Seibert. Special thanks goes to Kathy Joseph, Fiddlehead Sellers, and Fiddlesticks Winery. Two Glasses In is available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe, rate, and review.